0: Hello, and welcome to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. Today is July 23rd, 2020, and I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI, here with my co-host, TPI Senior Fellow and President Emeritus, Tom Leonard. Today we're excited to be talking with Jay Bhattacharya. Jay is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and at the Stanford Freeman Spogli Institute. He holds courtesy appointments as professor in economics and in health research and policy. He directs the Stanford Center on the Demography of Health and Aging. Dr. Bhattacharya's research focuses on the economics of healthcare around the world with a particular emphasis on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations. His peer-reviewed research has been published in economics, statistics, legal, medical, public health, and health policy journals. He holds an MD and PhD in economics from Stanford University. Jay, thanks for being with us.
1: My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I uh, should also note, I think we overlapped uh, at Stanford doing our degrees. And so while I was struggling to do my PhD, you were making all the rest of us look bad by doing an MD and a PhD. So everyone never was a slacker by comparison.
1: uh, It took me longer to finish than you, Scott.
0: (laughs) So you've been doing a lot of work on COVID, uh, obviously, um, that being the crisis everyone's we're facing now. But why don't we start off maybe talking a, a little bit about baseball because that finally resumed this week, and it was one thing that seemed to be making some people happy, aside from there being no fans in the stadiums. But you did some work with Major League Baseball early on, not, well, somewhere, you know, a couple of months ago on infection rates and transmission. You know, tell us a little bit about that study and what you learned and how you think it applies now to their starting back at the season.
1: Sure. So the study was on, was an antibody prevalence study in Major League Baseball. The idea was to measure what fraction of the employee population, employee Major League Baseball, not, we didn't actually have that many athletes that participated in the study. What fraction showed evidence of antibody response to having had a COVID infection? What we found was that about 0.7% of that population had some antibody evidence. And in many cases, that was lower than what we've now seen for seroprevalence studies that were uh, that have been done in in the same community. It's interesting. So, I, like, I think it has that study has more public health implications than it does for the opening of Major League Baseball. So, first, I think 0.7 sounds like a small number. It is a small number. It suggested that in mid April or or like a third week of April, when we did the study, that the epidemic hadn't really gone very far along, like a relatively small fraction of the population had been infected with it. In places where there were overlapping community seroprevalence studies, MLB po- employee population had lower prevalence. So for instance, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I think uh, one of the teams had zero prevalence. And in New York, it was, you know, a fraction of the seroprevalence estimates. So that also points to an interesting fact, which is that this is a, you would think this disease doesn't respect class boundaries, but in fact, it does. Richer people, people that have stable jobs that can work from home, which is true for much of the MLB, employee population, then for me, me too, of course, and you can, you get much lower rates of COVID exposed less than poorer people who have to, basically, you have to, they still have to work, they still have to they put them go out in public and get exposed. So, there's, so I think that second lesson is an important one for thinking about COVID policy. A third lesson I drew from this is that there was a very substantial fraction of the people who tested positive with antibody evidence that reported no symptoms in the previous two weeks or two months, none zero symptoms whatsoever. And this confirms what a lot of other antibody studies have been finding, which is that there are a large number of people who have been exposed, got the disease, got better and had zero or minimal symptoms. And they don't get tested because they don't even know they're, they're sick or sick enough to, to warrant getting tested.
2: It's part of the reason that for that, that the, the antibody tests don't, I mean, there are several variants of COVID. And so do we, of the 0.7%, I mean, many of them may have had not the one we're concerned about right now. Is that correct? Or?
1: So this the antibody test, the, the, the antibody specifically we're testing for is common to all of the variants of COVID that make people sick. So there's a protein on the, that's coded by the RNA virus called this spike protein. And the spike protein has a region that binds to the receptor that allows the COVID virus into your cells. And so that's the one we're testing for. Every single COVID variant that makes you sick has that. Now, but there's something for sure in what you say, because there's increasing evidence that there are other antibody responses to COVID that are not specific to COVID. Right. So if you like there's some evidence that just came out today in a, in a preprint bioarchive, for instance, suggesting that if you've had other coronaviruses, non-COVID coronaviruses, because, you know, coronavirus is just as a common cold virus before COVID, that might offer some protection. And so there's, for instance, that's, that explains partly why kids seem to be less affected by it, because they're breeders of these colds, as any parent can tell you, from, that have had little kids. But I mean, so I think in a sense, we underestimated the prevalence because we are ask, we are checking for the specific antibody specifically to COVID, and there may have been other antibodies that we didn't measure that were extant in the population.
0: So what are the results suggest we should be doing that we're not currently doing? I mean, we know that poor people are more likely to be in what we're calling essential jobs, but it's often because they don't, I mean, like you said, they don't have the option of staying home. What do we do about that?
1: I mean, this is one of these heartbreaking things. I mean, I think it's, going to, it's COVID and this and our policy response to COVID is going to intensify inequality, not just in work and in health, but also in education and a whole variety of other things. Your question is difficult, partly because, I mean, maybe you start say, I mean, I, my understanding of the epidemic is a little different than I think than a lot of the public health folks. So I'll start with a premise. And the premise is based on the prevalence work, I think it's too widespread to eradicate we just have to live with it. I've thought this mm-hmm. now for months. If that's true, then the policy that we adopt should take that as a starting point. We shouldn't be aiming at eradicating it because the policies that one adopts to eradicate are enormously costly. may not even be possible. I think it's not possible even no matter how much cost we pay at this point, absent a vaccine coming around. So the right question is how do we manage it? How do we manage our lives with the fact that COVID is here? And I think you start with a good understanding of what the risk actually is to people from getting infected. That's the most important number if we're going to start to think about policy. And the thing is, it's not one number. It's a whole host of numbers, depending on both the host and the virus and the circumstances of treatment available to you, right? So, for instance, if you're over, let's say you're under 50, the risk of dying from the virus is less than one in a thousand. The risk of dying, if you'll get infected, if you're under 20, it's almost... I mean, I won't say zero, but it's like one in 100,000, one in 10,000 on that order. Whereas if you're over 65 and you have multiple chronic conditions, your risk of dying is much higher. So the first lesson for policy is we absolutely have to distinguish the risk and the response based on that risk. So for instance, I think nursing homes should be absolutely quarantined. I've faced this myself with a friend of mine who passed away during the COVID epidemic in a nursing home where I, I could just see him over the fence, with both of us with masks on, 12 feet away, there's a fence between. It is heartbreaking to not be able to say goodbye to them, really. I mean, I think that policy is absolutely wise because we know that when people that are older with multiple chronic conditions get the disease, they die at much higher rates. We should protect them. Schools, on the other end, are a good example of where we should do the exact opposite thing. At schools, the rate at which kids die from COVID is lower than the flu. We don't close schools down for the flu. There's evidence from a study that was done in Iceland, an absolutely fascinating study published in New England Journal, where what they did is they randomly sampled Icelandic population, I think 12, 13, 14% of it. They isolated virus strains from the entire population. Every single virus, person that turned positive, they pulled the virus strain out, and then they sequenced the genome. And so and then they checked to see, okay, suppose I get the, I had the virus and I got mutation A, and you get the virus, you get mutation A and B. Well, that means that I might have passed the virus to you because, you know, you you just added on an additional mutation when you got it, but it's very unlikely you passed the virus on to me. And they combined this with contact tracing information. What they found was that there was not one single instance of a child passing the virus on to an adult. Let's say child is like 10, let's say 10 and under, 10 10 to 15, even very, very low rates of transmission. What we're learning is that the children actually have, are more likely to have some of this innate T-cell mediated immunity than adults but that has really important implications for schools. It is entirely safe to open schools up physically.
0: So you think it's a mistake that schools are being closed preemptively now for the fall?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's an enormous mistake, an enormous policy mistake that we'll pay for for a generation. Our kids will pay for for a generation because human capital is a very, very difficult to replace.
2: So I'm asking a question going back to the nursing home thing. So since this is not gonna be over real soon, are you suggesting that nursing homes should basically be isolated for a year? Or, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a pretty sad <laughs> to think of that, that these people will not be able to see their kids, their grand, you know.
1: I mean, I think there will be technologies that will make that isolation easier to manage or it's not less complete. So for instance, rapid antigen testing to see if I'm not positive, then I should be allowed to go in. Right now, tests, the, the virus test takes a long, like a day or two or sometimes a week to get back. That makes it very unwieldy to break the quarantine. But if you had a rapid antigen test, you just test me. If I'm negative, then I'm allowed to go in. If I'm positive, I'm not. And still have to wear masks and all that just to make sure. Because, you know, a lot of it's, it's not just symptoms. Like people use the thermometer on the head. Most people that have it don't have the, the fever. It's not enough just to do that. You need something more specific. But so I think some of the isolation could be relaxed with better technology. How, do you have any idea how soon those technologies will be available? I mean, like some of them are kind of already available. Like rapid antigen testing, I know that there've been several companies that have put put some out. The FDA is still considering them. They're not as accurate as the PCR test for the virus, but they may not need to be, right? So if you're in a low prevalence area, which is, you know, like still a much, I mean, like increasing a smaller fraction of the country, but still a lot of the country, you know, a negative is really a negative. I mean, it's, so even though the test may have some errors, it's really, it's likely to be right. So in that case, even though you have a test with, you know, 80% or 85% sensitivity, it's fine. You know, negative is a negative. So I think that kind of like regulatory decision about what the threshold should be to allow the test to be in the population shouldn't just be a epidemiologic thing where they have to have and meet some arbitrary standard for how good the test has to be. It should be tied to the policy decisions about what usage you're going to use the test.
0: Do you think the massive testing strategy that Paul Romer has been advocating is a productive way to go, assuming we had the, the capacity to test at the levels that he's talking
1: about? I mean, I followed some of, of what his suggestions are. My sense is that he's emphasizing a PCR test. Hmm. and The kind of thing he's talking about is a, a massive one-day or two-day, let's test literally the census of Americans, and then isolate just the people that top turn It seems really unrealistic to me to do anything like that. Just because there's large populations that are hard to reach, even with a, a multi-month census, how you would get homeless populations how you would get large numbers of people who are difficult to reach actually that are isolating they're just not going to answer the door right i don't practice i mean if it's great i think in theory but i don't know how you do it in practice um, i mean you would
2: isolate the more vulnerable populations particularly older people particularly people in nursing homes or people with other conditions and then kind of let the rest of society go on relatively
1: normally is that think that's the right policy, Tom, because I don't see any alternative. Now, what I've heard, and I'm I'm sympathetic, is that you're going to get some excess deaths in those populations. That's absolutely true. But you have to balance that against the deaths that I know that we're already getting from the shutdown. Suicides are up among kids and not just among kids. We're seeing people that are delaying or not getting chemotherapy or radiation therapy for cancer. The rate at which people are getting screened for cancer is an all-time low. People are, are delaying vaccination for their children because of fear of COVID, your fear of like going to, the, to see the doctor with COVID. We're going to see where well, there going to be health effects that have nothing directly to do with COVID, but indirectly having to do with the lockdown policies for a long time now. And the deaths from that is that we're going to start reaping those deaths soon. I mean, it's, you, I think you've seen the excess death numbers. It's for sure has caused the COVID itself has caused excess deaths. But I think we're going to start to see is the excess deaths from the, we're going to find out how important the healthcare system actually is. It's a health economist. It's a, it's a fantastic experiment, but you know, I won't take any joy in analyzing it.
0: I mean, you're also, I guess, raising a point of sort of difference between how epidemiologists look at the pandemic versus how economists look at it. And so do you find yourself at odds with epidemiologists with the approach that you take?
1: I'm writing a book. I'm going to call it The Denominator War, Scott. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's, I've been in a lot of fights with epidemiologists over some of this work. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, I guess whenever fields come together, you're always going to have some clash of cultures. So it's, it is what it is. Economists are supposed sort of to be contrarian. <laughs> that's true. <laughs>
0: true. That's right. But do you think it's been, I mean, sometimes that debate could be productive and sometimes it isn't. How do you feel it's affected our response to the epidemic? Has it been a collaboration or is it just? Lots of arguments.
1: To some extent, I mean, it's heterogeneous, right? So, like Mm -hmm. some epidemiologists have been really open and some much less so. I mean, I've worked with some fantastic folks who do epidemiology for a living during this crisis and before, who've been very open to some of these ideas and others who are just, but I think, and to be fair, I've seen some economists fall into this trap too. I think if you think about policy just as I need to stop COVID, premised on let's eliminate the disease, you're going to, whether you're an economist or epidemiologist, you're going to be led to a certain set of policies. If you view it this as something we have to live with and we have to have trade-offs and we have to figure out how to manage it, well, now we're in the economics world. So I think that difference in viewpoint is more important than just the disciplinary epidemiology or economist kind of approach to this. And I think part of the problem for me has been just trying to, you know, I, I think because overlaid on this is this moral aspect of it's very easy to like to. Pull it in an argument when you disagree with somebody, pull an argument and say, well, Look, you want these people to die, as if you can end the argument about trade offs with that, right? We're always, as economists, we often face this as an occupational hazard where we sound callous when we're, all we're saying is, Look, we don't want these people to die. We're just we're being realistic about the trade offs and their deaths on both sides, right? Of, the, of, the, of this. So I think that moral frame has to be an overarching thing where we care about all the deaths that come from the lockdown, from COVID, all. I mean, we have to, we have to like, put weight on all of them. And if you focus just on COVID, and this should come natural to anyone who thinks like in this way, if you focus just on COVID, you will end up doing worse for society. And if you then you try to like take a broader view and say, let's look at all these people who are going to suffer from the different policies, one way or the other, unfortunately, people are going to die. Question is, how do we manage that so that we minimize the suffering?
0: I mean, it's going to be a while before we have all the data on that. But what do you think we should have done differently in managing the, our response to it?
1: Well, I think for, and this is going to sound funny, I think for one, because we didn't have steroid prevalence data early, we shut down too early in most of the country. Hmm. We shut down when the disease was basically not present in the vast chunks of the country. But now some of the country was present. We shut down, but we didn't fully shut down the places that should have been shut down. So nursing home deaths are a absolute disaster. You know, I think I mean I don't know exact numbers, but it wouldn't surprise me a third or of all deaths or half. I mean, somewhere in there of all deaths or nursing home deaths, we should have done a much better job protecting nursing homes, and we knew that older people were vulnerable from the Chinese data that had come in in January and February. That was not a surprise. In China, the older people died at much higher rates. And we should have realized that and focused our lockdown efforts in places where the disease was spreading, where the nursing homes were. You remember, looked at one of the very earliest things I remember from, I think it was February, was this nursing home in Washington State that had an outbreak, where a really sad number of people died as a result of the outbreak. That should have been a signal to us about what the policy should be. Would you, going back to the, you know, getting back to relatively
2: normal activities for the bulk of the population, would you, assuming we could get our act
1: together, which is obviously questionable, would you do large-scale contact tracing, go along with that? I mean, I think some contact tracing is probably worthwhile. I think now that the disease is so widespread, and the antibody evidence suggests it is, it kind of has a limited role. Like you'll end up doing, so contact tracing, the way it works, I have the disease, you check, ask me where I've been. And Scott, unfortunately, you and I were in the same room once, 17 years ago, so now Scott is going to be two weeks quarantined, and then you move in a circle around him. You ask for Scott where he's been, and you keep, you keep expanding until, I think the social network, given how widespread the disease is, will cover the entire population. You'll have to contact trace everybody. Contract tracing is tantamount to checking the entire population more or less at once. So I don't know about contact, but, but I do think like social distancing, to some extent mask wearing, those kinds of things, even if you don't mandate them, people will do them. Because don't, people don't feel safe, and they want some agency. And there's some evidence that that helps, right? So people will do them, do those things, and I think that's completely reasonable.
0: But if, we're going to, if it's going to spread until there's some kind of herd immunity, then I guess you would expect, even places that got it under control, if they got it under control before that, they'll see resurgences. Is that what uh, we should well, be expecting? Yeah, so
1: like I, think, I think, for instance, we're seeing that in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I draw right. some resurgence because they had basically locked down everything. that it looked like it was under control and spread spread again. There's some places where I think we've reached herd immunity actually. I mean, I think mm. I would be very surprised if there was a second resurgence in New York. I mean, you might see some blips, like endemic cases might come up, but you know, like I think Bronx, I saw seroprevalence prevalence you on the order of fifty percent. That's herd immunity. Probably even actually there's there's been some theoretical work that suggests herd immunity might be even lower than that mm. if cell mediated immunity is really, really important. Oh, obviously it's theoretical, so we'll see. I mean, in a sense, like Sweden, you're seeing that's the policy they followed. They opened up, they kept everything basically open. People did social distance there. People did, you know, they, not less mask wearing, but a lot more social distancing. All of the people didn't go out. You, you saw basically now cases are down at very low. Deaths are down very low. They've reached herd immunity there.
2: But in the absence of a vaccine, doesn't, does the whole thing start all over again in the next flu season?
1: I mean, it could. It depends on how long lasting the immunity is, Tom. And that's a big open question, right? It's a big open We don't know the answer to that. But nobody thinks, I mean, there's questions about how long it lasts, but
2: nobody thinks it's permanent or semi-permanent. Yeah, I don't
1: think, I mean, the coronavirus, from what I understand, at least of other coronavirus immunity, it's not forever. It is generally longer than, it could be more than a year. I mean, it really. varies from person to person. I'll give you some bad news and some good news on that front. The bad news is it seems like the specific antibodies that we've been measuring, that I've been measuring in my work, they disappear relatively quickly. Hmm. A few months, not for everybody, but for some such chunk of the population. On the other hand, there seems to be this this sort of induced T cell mediated immunity that some portion of the population gets that we're not measuring their very population level very well. So I can't give you specific numbers. That does seem to last a much longer. So I don't know. It's still, I mean, earlier I was in the epidemic, I was saying, I don't know what the immunity is going to be like because the people hadn't really done the studies. The studies are starting to come out. I think there is immunity. We know it lasts at least five months, but that's all we can say about it because it's only been five months, right? And then we hope it lasts longer. The question is what will happen going, let's, let's say it lasts less than a year, Tom, right? So in that case, what we'll get is people will start to become non-immune, they'll become susceptible, and you'll see outbreaks, little outbreaks, little outbreaks. You will never again see this massive spike because people got immune at different times. They got unimmune, for this other word, unimmune at different times. And so you'll start to see like this endemic thing and I mean, that's what herd immunity looks like. It doesn't look like zero infections. It looks like this thing that's just sort of endemics floating around all the time. And that's why you'd have to protect the older population for a long time.
0: you, well, well, your work focuses on vulnerable populations and the largest groups of vulnerable people are in poor countries. And right now we see, if you look at India's cases, it's as if somebody wrote an equation and they're just following it exactly. I mean, the exponential epidemic growth is... It looks like it just came right out of a textbook. What do you do in a place like that? I mean, they locked down originally, but for people who are already so impoverished, uh, lockdown is, really can kill them. I mean, what do you do? With, if you're at the Indian government and you're trying to think of what to do about this, what do you do now?
1: It's uh, I mean in some sense a sad thing I mean like I have tried to like help get seroprevalence studies started in India and but now there actually have been some seroprevalence work for instance Delhi I think it's the ICMR study found 25 percent of Delhi it's uh, because testing resources are less in India that's a bigger multiple than the, than we found in Santa Clara County and other and in LA County and people are finding it's CDC found in the US. I mean, even though the cases look like they're rising rapidly, they're actually a small multiple of all the cases. Same sure. in India as, as it is everywhere else. And the lockdowns themselves in many poor parts of India probably intensified the spread of the disease because many people live in the same house. There were police basically forcing you to stay in the house. that like you, you could get imprisoned. I mean, you could, it was like it was really a sharp lockdown. And the disease spreads indoors at very high rates. So one positive person who normally spends most of the day outdoors selling food or something, instead spends all day lo- inside with this elderly mom. And uh, so you're going to get, you're going to spread it there more rapidly than if you allowed their people to like walk around. I mean, so I think it's not clear in India that the lockdowns actually did. I mean, it's pretty clear it didn't do anything. It certainly didn't suppress the disease long enough to, to stop it from spreading. I don't see any policy in India outside of herd immunity. I really don't. And um, again, the question is protection of older people. How do you do that in a setting where there's a lot of intergenerational cohabitation? And the striking thing, though, is, is the death rates are lower in India, less than in the United States. The infection fatality rate seems like it's 1 in a 1,000 in India, whereas in the U.S., it seems like somewhere between 2 to 5 in a 1,000.
0: Is that because it's a much younger
1: population? Yeah, it's much, that's why. Mm-hmm. It's a much younger population, and that, that plays a big role. Actually, that probably explains partly why Italy had it so bad. I mean, a much older population in Italy, Belgium had it so bad. That age-specific IFR is something that I mean. That it's really important to think about. What, what do you think? Or what do you think are the prospects for a vaccine? You know, if you'd asked me three weeks ago, I would have said bad. But I've kind of started to like. There's this hope that's springing up inside me. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I was looking at some of the new technologies they have. They have this like one technology where they put mRNA snippet that codes for a little bit of the virus, right? And so your body takes up the mRNA. the cells take up the mRNA produce the snippet yourself, translate the snippet into a, a DNA fragment, which then produces the immune response. I've never seen, I mean, maybe I don't do molecular biology for a living, but I haven't seen that use as vaccine before. That's pretty amazing, actually. And, and been a, there's now, I think... Uh, 137 vaccine candidates worldwide, eight in trial or six or seven in trial in the United States alone, Uh, China. I mean, I think there's a lot of hope for this. I mean, it might actually work. And some of the phase one evidence suggests that the vaccines do produce neutralizing antibodies. This could work. And we've made an enormous bet, by the way. We basically have said, we'll pay you, I don't know, Pfizer or whoever, X billion dollars to start manufacturing these vaccines even before the trials are done so that when, if it turns out the trials turn out good, we don't fight over who gets it first. Everyone will have it. Well, given the amount of money we're throwing at other things, that seems almost a small amount of money. <laughs> no, I think it's a good bet. I mean, like, so what, I, like if, if the vaccine works and the data look good, we should absolutely spread it out to the entire population instantly, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I'm I, I think we can afford
2: to spend a, a few billion dollars on vaccines that may ultimately not prove out, <laughs>
1: and, you know, some other use for a whole bunch of MRA se- uh, se- you know, segments that, that don't the code for a virus Some someone will find even if it doesn't work for the vaccine. Some you know who knows.
0: <laughs> if a vaccine does not come about in the next by the by the end of the year, at what point is are we close enough to herd immunity in general that you'd say, all right, well let's just get back to life as normal as we can? And you said we have it somewhere, maybe some places
1: already. But. Like some of the places that have had it the worst. I mean, again, there's it's a lot of uncertainty, scientific uncertainty still about this, but I think like New York, you know, New Jersey, increasingly it looks like now maybe Arizona, Texas, the places that are in the news as like they're in the worst shape in a month or two will be in the best shape. We've already seen this with New York, where right? Everyone's mm-hmm. tidying it the success story and they've forgotten the, the vast mountain of deaths we had. It's not a success story. What it is, is just the story, right? We don't have a way to manage this illness. We don't have a way to treat it. There are some success stories. And I think partly what explains New York is, or we already talked about the nursing home, but also partly is that they were unfortunate because they were early on in the epidemic. Medically, we've learned better how to manage the condition when you're in the hospital. You know, you're seeing less of the ventilator mediated. I mean, the, the people on ventilators are, are the 1st they're getting on ventilators at lower rates and they're mm-hmm. coming off ventilators and surviving at higher rates. I think I saw a study in England, like I think the mortality rate inside the hospital is a quarter of what it was at the beginning of the epidemic inside the UK.
0: In, um, Can that paradoxically create more crowding in the hospital or do they get to go home earlier too?
1: Earlier, me, I earlier. There, there seems to be. I mean, partly it's also the younger people in the hospital. The mm-hmm. young people are getting it. There's also like this development of some new therapeutics with old medicines, like dexamethasone, which is a steroid. Like one of the mechanisms by which people get sick with this, when they get in the lung and they have this, it's called cytokine release syndrome, where where essentially your, your immune system, because it's overwhelmed with the virus, reacts with this massive immune response. And that is the immune response that kills you rather right, opposed to the virus itself directly. So managing that with steroids has turned out to be useful. And there are technologies like ECMO, which is this, uh, essentially you oxygenate the blood directly as opposed to through ventilation through the lung. That seems to be useful in some cases, like very, very severe cases, especially ones where the lungs, so I mean, I think we've learned how to treat the disease better than the folks knew in February. So getting it now is safer and, and not, not safe, but safer than it was back then. So it's, I mean, I think that partly explains New York also.
0: So we're, I mean, we're, we're running out of time, but I, it, I'd like to know, I mean, there are, there are many, many sites that are tracking data and lots of people like me who look at them obsessively. What are the statistics that you think best show the state of the disease? I mean, we focus on cases, but cases are just the tests times positive rate.
1: Yeah, I think um, cases are misleading statistics, Scott. And I, I regret that that's the number one thing that everyone seems to track if they mm-hmm. want to track anything. I focus on two things. One is cases in the elderly, and then two, I, I focus on deaths. Mm-hmm. What is how many deaths there are? Those two numbers, to me, if, you, if I'm going to pick two numbers, I'll pick those two numbers. Beyond that, I I'll, I'll want to know the prevalence. But that prevalence is based on zero prevalence studies. Those are sporadically released, as opposed to like tracked continuously, day to day. But yeah, if you're trying to follow along, I would look for percent, sort of the, the how many elderly people get the disease and how many people die from the disease.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, I guess we should wrap up. So, Jay, thanks so much for talking with us.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks a lot. Yeah.